Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. It's B and I here today, no guests, just the OGs. And we are talking about optimal cord practices, optimal cord management. I'm not going to call it delayed cord clamping or optimal cord clamping because we are talking about way more than cord clamping today to not clamp or to clamp and how long and how long do we leave it pulsing. This is all about optimal management and approaches to caring for the baby's umbilical cord. And yeah, we're basically we're gonna go through a lot, B. I have been researching this to the eyeballs. I can see, I can see the research in your eyeballs. Yeah. All right, let's dive into it then. Let's do it. All right. So for anybody who's very brand new to having babies and hasn't had one before or even knows anything about the labor process, firstly, very important to go to our previous episodes. We've talked about the labor process. We've talked about pushing out your baby. We've talked about management of placental birth. We haven't yet talked about what happens to the cord after your baby's born. So if you're a brand new newbie, so your baby comes out and it's got an umbilical cord in its belly button. That's how we all get belly buttons from umbilical cords. And that cord is attached to your placenta, which is still inside you. Now, if you're having mainstream maternity care, and most of the people listening to this will be, your baby comes out and your care provider will be super interested in the timing of when to detach your baby from its placenta by clamping and cutting the cord and so that's what we 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 just say clamp and cut the cord um often in hospitals they use a little plastic clamp it probably will sit one to two centimeters away from your baby's you know abdomen belly button and then you cut the cord and that clamp stays in place at least until the cord's dry to stop any blood from coming out so that's what we're talking about today is clamping. Now, historically, I mean, I'm not going to talk about like 200 years historically, but a medicalized approach to birth would see that you have your baby and then you get an injection of oxytocin. It's called syntocin in Australia, pitocin in America. I'm not sure what they call it in the UK. And Clamping and cutting used to be part of the process of what we call active management of placenta birth with that injection. Again, go back to our placental birth podcast if you want to learn all about that. But clamping and cutting the cord was part of that process and that injection happens very soon after the birth of your baby, like within a minute. And so today, rather than focusing solely on optimal cord clamping or delayed cord clamping, we're going to focus on how to care for the baby's cord and keep it attached as long as possible in various scenarios. So there's no denying all the research is basically now in support of not immediately cutting and clamping the cord. That used to be the practice. Baby came out, it was almost like the person was there ready 
with a clamp with the scissors and they just clamp it, cut it, boom, like it's done. I remember when I was studying, it was like the baby's feet weren't even out of the vagina and we were clamping and cutting. Like there was this immediate rush. Like at the time, intuitively, my body would be like, this isn't right. Like my, my body was like, this isn't right. Like yeah. what are we doing? I had that like response to it of like, what are we doing here? It just looked and felt wrong. It felt wrong. And But even now, I really, I remember teaching, I, I've taught Neonetta Resource for years through an organisation called Krina Plus. And like 10 years ago, I was saying, I really don't think we'll be clamping and cutting cords for anything. Like, I, you know, I feel like we'll be doing resuscitation with the baby still attached. And, you know, we're, we're, we haven't progressed as quickly as I thought in this. There's been a lot of progression. I do want to honour that. There's been a lot. Like when I look back to what we were doing when I started my career to now, there has been a lot. I, I just, you know, impatient B, I think, had grand plans for the world. <laughs> 10 years ago in terms of this subject, unfortunately. Well, even this cord, even this cord clamping, the research that I've got on the list there, you know, there's papers that go back, there's, I'm sure there's earlier ones, but 2014, you know, Cochrane was talking about this in the early 2000s. It's not, there's a lot of research and a, a lot of hospitals now do what they call delayed cord clamping, where they'll wait at least a few minutes to clamp the cord. Can we talk about why we we don't like that term just to kind of really enable people to understand? So when we call it delay and call clamping, what we are saying is that we're delaying something and actually we're just delaying our previous actions. We're not delaying physiology. What we're actually doing is respecting or attempting to respect physiology. So in the court, I always like to the girl's name Ava. Apologies if it was on your list and I've just ruined this now. But I always Ava is how I learned the, the three cord vessels. So you've got artery, vein, artery. And around those beautiful vessels is a jelly. I mean, I've always been big on that. So yeah, it's not Wharton's jelly. It's our beautiful cords jelly that we have made in our bodies. And it is a natural clamper, right? It's like, you know, that whole process, the cord actually naturally clamps itself. And yes, different cultures have had different ways of separating baby from placenta, but we're not delaying. The only thing we're delaying when we do delayed cord clamping is our own actions. Where and we're trying to respect physiology. Physiology is protecting its own functions, which were created for a reason. And we and I think they start they started change they changed the terminology to optimal cord clamping for that exact reason. But who is it optimal for? Well, I am going to talk about that. Yes. Optimal. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a massive can of worms we're going to open today. Honestly. Ooh. Reading, I'm like, mate, this can of worms is getting bigger and bigger. And it's kind of exciting because I feel like we need a bit of controversy on this podcast. I feel like we could add some controversy. Sometimes your Australian Oka accent just hit <laughs> really hard. <laughs> Somebody, uh, there's our UK listeners. Shout out to our UK listeners. Uh, we've been referred to as Summer Heights High. 
Oh. In the UK, that's how I needed clear. pre-warning. I needed pre-warning of that before we were live and I had to respond. I, I mean, I love Jamie. Okay, Mel, let's just go around in a circle and say all the things that you like about me. <laughs> that was my favourite Jamie moment ever. <laughs> what? Can you, I just need to please, I don't want to say please explain because nope. I do not want to be connected to her at all. Please. <laughs> So just so you know, out there in the UK, I think they don't realise the the nuance of the difference, different types of stereotypes here in Australia, but we are apparently not far from the Summer Heights High standard of Aussie. Uh, so hello, shout out to the UK people. Anyway. You know what? It's because we're Western Sydney people. Oh, no. <laughs> Mel and I actually come from the same place, Sasha. Yeah, optimal, optimal cord clamping. Shall we continue? No, I need to go back to that. We are from the same place, so our accents. I've just criticised your accent. <laughs> Realise that mine's probably just as bad. <laughs> just as amazing. Just as amazing. Let's go on to. Oh, yeah, I needed more warning about that comment. What did I say, I just want to know what was. The no, comment? it was. It was actually in. It, like it was an endearing way of talking about it. Um, it was imagine. actually I was eavesdropping into somebody's Facebook conversation. That sounds bad. Like I think someone had mentioned the Great Birth Rebellion podcast in a in a post, and so that's how it flagged. Like somebody had tagged me, and I think I clicked on the conversation and saw that they were having a mini conversation within that post, and somebody had just written "Summer Heights High," ha ha ha, and like. It was endearing. Like the conversation was positive about us. I don't think they realise that it could be like, I don't know, I don't want to say offensive. I'm not offended. Maybe B, we don't see it. Maybe we're in it. Maybe we are just really lowbrow Aussie and we don't know. You know what? And we're all perfect just the way we are. We're optimal no matter, <laughs> no matter what accent we have. Another optimal stereotypical Australian people. Um, okay, we're going to go back. So optimal cord clamping. Uh, let me get back to my notes. Now I'm completely thrown. Okay, what I want to talk about, let's talk about the physiology of it and what happens with newborn blood volume. So we know optimal cord clamping is basically not clamping and cutting the cord before the baby's ready. And I'll talk about how to assess for baby readiness with cord clamping in a minute. But first I want everyone to understand what the baby's using its cord for and why it's important that we're all focused on optimal cord clamping. So from the very beginning, the baby makes its own placenta and inside the placenta and the baby is the baby's blood only. There's no maternal blood. So at any one time, approximately two-thirds of the baby's blood that it made and the placenta that it made, two-thirds of the baby's blood is circulating in the baby's body and the other third is circulating through the placenta. So the baby's sending blood up and down in through the arteries and veins, two A's, one V, in the, the cord, sending it back and forth to the placenta to go and collect nutrients, nourishment, oxygen, all kinds of things from the maternal blood supply. They don't touch, but that's where that's where all the action happens in the placenta. And then the blood gets 
oxygenated and nourished and sent back to the baby and the baby's body uses it to grow and thrive. So then when the baby, that's how it's using it, then when the baby comes out, it needs to transition from relying on the placenta for nourishment and oxygen to then that all happening without the placenta. So there's a transition period whereby the baby stops using its placenta and starts relying on the external environment. In which it uses its lungs. So in utero, the lungs are filled with fluid and there's no air in them. And so there is this whole transition that occurs once we are born to go from getting oxygen from the placenta to getting it from the earth and taking it into our bodies and filling our lungs with it. Yeah. So as the baby's being squished out, here I'm doing a little squish, as it's being squished out, the the lungs kind of, not they don't collapse, but they're squished. And then when the baby comes out, they kind of open, like <laughs> is what I want to say. They kind of pop open. There is a substance called surfactant which coats towards the end of your pregnancy, the baby's lungs get coated with this surfactant, which kind of make him, make the lungs a bit bouncy and able to ping open when the baby's born. And so simultaneously, as the baby gets pushed out, its lungs expand to receive or actually almost suck in air. I kind of describe it to people like a sponge. It's a in- vacuum. Really? It's a vacuum, yeah. So, so the it, diaphragm contracting down for all humans that are breathing extra outside of the uterus, the the diaphragm contracts down and that vacuums air into our lungs. We often people say, fill your lungs with air, you know, take a deep breath into your lungs. That's not The lungs are just this container and then the diaphragm works as the vacuum to suck the air in really. Yeah, and I kind of describe it to people like a sponge. Like if you picked up a sponge and squished it and then plunged it in some water and let go of the sponge, the sponge sort of sucks water in. So that's a little bit like what happens to the baby's lungs is it kind of sucks air into their lungs. Except that's the science of osmosis. Well, yeah, but imagine the water is thing. Yeah, if you think of the water like air. Exactly. Yes. So then, and then what also happens is because the lungs are actually full of amniotic fluid, because the baby's been in fluid its whole life, as the lungs expand, the fluid actually moves into the baby's bloodstream uh, to sort of, I guess, dry out the lungs if we're going to talk about it. But the babies also kind of cough and sneeze and splutter as well for the first few days, which brings up extra fluid. So the the transition to breathing air after having virtually having no air in its lungs is almost instantaneous. Like a baby comes out, we give them a minute to transition and be able to adequately transfer air through these lungs that were previously full of fluid. You want that that initial expansion, right? That initial expansion is what determines how much surface area the baby's got to to breathe with and transition with, and. And then there's been, in utero, there's actually only enough blood supply to the lungs to keep the tissue healthy, to keep the lung tissue healthy and developing. Whereas in with us air-breathing people, the, the blood volume that is circulated to the lungs is massive because now that's where the oxygen enters into your bloodstream and gets travelled all around your body. And so the baby has to actually 
the baby's circulation is completely different to yours and I. When we, our circulation is wired completely different to a baby in utero. Yeah, humans outside <laughs> the uterus. It's, yeah. What, what term is that? <laughs> well, extra, uter- extra uterine life. Yeah, yeah. Intrauterine life, your circulation is completely different. And then the minute that you start breathing air and that transition is successful, there are, I think it's four gates. It's four gates that basically close. So there's these gates in the baby's circulation that once it takes a full effective breath and the baby's body's recognized that it actually no longer needs to rely on the placenta for life, that it's fully properly transitioned, the baby's circulation will close all these gates and completely reroute their blood circulation. I'm not going to explain exactly what happens there, but there's a gate in the heart. So, you know, there's those babies, they say, oh, the baby's got a hole in the heart. That's babies that get that's gate didn't properly close, the heart gate. There's a gate that cuts off the blood circulation from the baby's belly button to its placenta. So that gate happens. Um, anyway, there's a number of other ways, but it basically... Re, it changes the way the baby's blood circulates and it happens almost instantaneously. So we expect this transition to occur within the first one. We check it at one minute, five minutes and 10 minutes. Like the check of the baby's APGAR is talking about how effectively a baby transitioned to extra uterine life. So, you know, once the baby comes out, if you uh, immediately cut and clamp the cord for a baby, then you interrupt that circulation adaptation. And I want to talk about what happens. Oh, there's so much to talk about. I don't know which order to do it in. Okay, let's talk about equilibrium. What happens through that placenta as the baby's closing all those circulation gates? It is actually taking and giving blood to and from the placenta the, the, the baby is aiming to find a blood volume equilibrium while it's doing this transition. So it's taking its first breath, it's oxygenating differently, and its whole circulation is deciding when is the right time to close these gates. When are we fully dependent on the external environment and no longer needing the internal environment? And so the baby can actually will physiologically grab some of its blood from the placenta add it to its blood volume and there'll be some kind of feedback system that tells them, oh, that's too much, put some back and it will back and forth like this until the baby's body is confident that we've reached a blood volume equilibrium and and then it's time to, to close off these gates for good. We no longer need the placenta. We're certain, douche, close that gate. So they've actually studied this blood flow and how much blood is going back and forth and for how long. And they've also noticed that actually a baby's cry, if they're crying or not, determines how much blood comes back and forth from the placenta. So they've noticed when a baby's not crying, there's a change in blood flow. And when it is crying, there's a change in blood flow. So we always talk about, oh, yeah, it's important for the baby to cry for lung function, for respiration at birth. And that kind of helps to set that initial respiration. But a baby's cry also helps to set their circulation from what they've found in these studies. Uh, and these studies are in the resource folder. There's a big list today because there was a lot. So we talked about the veins and the arteries. They studied how much venous blood flow and how much arterial blood flow happens and for how long. 
So the initial research that we've, a lot of people are going off for delayed pond clamping, I'm doing inverted commas. Uh, it says, you know, anything more than a minute or so seems to be enough for the baby to transition. If you want to cut and clamp the cord after a minute, they're saying, look, most of the transition has happened. There's actually research that says, no, that's not the case. And this research was done in 2014. And they studied the venous flow at, so at birth. And at five minutes, an average of five minutes, still 33% of the babies showed continued blood flow, venous blood flow through the cord. And in 43% of babies at about five minutes, there was still arterial flow. And so what this study was saying is that actually we don't really properly understand how long every single baby needs before we clamp their cord because they found that it at least at five minutes, nearly half or even a third, less than about a third of babies still had venous and arterial blood flow through their placenta, through their cord towards their placenta and back. And what that is saying is that the baby's still using it to transition and that the transition period is probably longer than we've been previously told. Uh, and then they also assessed how much flow was happening uh, during large breaths and when the baby was crying. So they found dramatic differences. If the baby was taking big, huge breaths in, um, they showed that venous flow increased significantly um, and can they could stop or reverse venous flow during crying. And so it's thought that actually the baby's rate of breathing and timing of crying influences the amount of blood flow that comes back and forth from the placenta. So much more complex than what we'd previously thought or what we've been taught. Um, so not only is the crying an element, but the breathing is, it also impacts circulation and not just the function of the lungs. I'm sitting here listening to you and also knowing a lot of the work that I've done over the last few years around really understanding how crying is one of our inbuilt mechanisms as part of homeostasis, right? So it's that beautiful, um, it, it's crying is so physiological and we just are so uncomfortable with it in our culture because of what it brings up mostly for us and especially a baby's cry, like you know, you know, you hear a baby crying, you start rocking, you tap something, you immediately want to shush. We it's so inbuilt in our culture not to allow space for these physiological for this physiological function. So I'm sitting here like, oh, wow, like actually, are we shutting down that newborn cry too soon? But there's also that babies have feelings and they will cry, and that is a beautiful part of them their nervous system and coming back into balance and so for me I'm like oh you know really think about like polyvagal theory and, and things like that like what's going on in their nervous system when they're born and it would make sense that for these things to be initiated physiologically that they would have to be in some kind of fight or flight response like that's it would make sense that that sympathetic nervous system domination then drives these physiological functions well that's what's happening for i mean we know for the mother 
there's a during that transition period to being in labor to then the pushing phase of labor there's an introduction of adrenaline into that final phase of birth it's it's a survival hormone and it's a and babies do experience a level of stress during labor it's physiological stress it's necessary stress it's stress that ensures their survival and so i assume if the mother is experiencing heightened adrenaline during that pushing phase that that's also being transferred to the baby and we're primed to survive using that adrenaline and maybe that is there to actually charge us for uh, as a newborn for that transition like that adrenaline is there as part of this like we're just hypothesizing now and you know you think about how other babies are born like there's this video I use when I teach of an elephant giving birth to a elephant <laughs> really <laughs> come to our podcast for the most mind-blowing information step right up um and it, it kicks this elephant around you watch it as as a as a human i watch it and i hold my breath right and you watch it and it kicks this elephant kicks it and kicks it and kicks it and kicks it and it's using stimulation to get it to breathe right but it's this incredible tool to show the power of what we actually have in terms of resuscitation with our own hands and and um, skills to try and because I'm often teaching people who don't do neonatal resuscitation a lot and so they come to it and they've got adrenaline and so trying to calm their nerves I, I use this teaching tool but you know I'm just sitting here unraveling this going okay that spike in adrenaline then leads to the baby the mother's spike in the adrenaline is the baby's spike in adrenaline which then is physiologically needed for this transition is what I've kind of I mean, there's so many elements to to be living in fluid and then suddenly, like almost instantaneously being able to completely reroute your circulation and start breathing oxygen with no help. That's the miracle of birth for a baby. But also now we have to respect how much the baby is doing with its placenta. And, and how so, it intuitively knows what it needs to do and how much physiology knows the plan. Well, and there's a process to this, right? The baby yeah. knows that we might not fully understand it, but there is just like there is a process of, of like a physiological process for birth, there's a physiological process that has to unfold for a baby to efficiently and effectively transition to extrauterine life. And we don't get to do this again. If you interrupt it, it's interrupted for good. And so when you get one shot at something, you want to do it the best, the most optimal way possible, right? And that's what we're talking about today is optimal care of this cord because it's the avenue to the placenta. The baby's using its placenta even though it's born. So how can we really efficiently nurture this this part this few minutes potentially yeah i've got a brilliant suggestion tell me you talked about we've only got one shot and immediately i went to eminem song let's sing it i can't even i don't even know you've got one shot just in the moment lose yourself in the moment you own it wait it's coming back when did this movie come out it's called one mile seven mile what's it one called? Mile. One, one mile. mile. 
Anyway, there is, um, I, we, my husband and I fostered children for a long time. And I remember at a foster care training session, they talked about that song and how beautiful it is for, ne- for our nervous system regulation, like, and how they use it. And I'm pretty sure then my husband, who was a teacher at the time, there was something that crossed over there around working with children. You know, he, he spent a lot of time working with teenage boys who need a lot of extra love and compassion and how that song is is really great for nervous system regulation so given that we're not respecting this physiological process very well right like so or you know you can have a physiological labor you can have a physiological birth which is really rare in australia it's becoming extinct and then that first intervention actually may be what we do with this baby another intervention is what we do with this baby's transition. And so maybe that song just needs to play in the background so that we all calm the farm, we all calm our nervous systems in order to respect this physiological process that knows what it's doing without us having to take over because that's exactly what's happened here, right? Just like with labour and birth, there's been a physiological process. We haven't understood it with good intentions. I want to say that, like, these things that we do, no one went, I really want to stuff up labour and birth. No one's gone, I really want to create all these issues for the person giving birth and the baby. We do it with our best intentions at heart. It's, the issue is then we realise that, oh, actually we aren't doing, we aren't getting the outcomes that we want here and actually this method hasn't worked. The issue is the un- unlearning and oh. how long that takes. Need to respect it again and, and the way to step away from that is what I'm saying here is to play it the M&M song so that we're all in balance within our nervous systems in order to respect the physiological process so now I want to see your birth videos in the hospital setting where your birth support people just play that song and go it's okay we've only got one shot one yeah. moment let's not lose ourselves let's allow this physiology to occur and then when the song's over then you can start to ask yourself, do you think the chords had enough time? So at least then, I mean, I don't know how long the song goes for. It's but a long song. Right. So we don't have any to... rights to that song. So that's oh. why we didn't sing it as well as we did. That's the only <laughs> that's reason. Why we, that's the only reason I didn't sing it exactly as it needed to be sung. There's copyright issues. So we had to do a bad job of it just so, um, you know, we wouldn't get in trouble. That's exactly right. And so now we need to, so that's why they called it optimal cord clamping because we've acknowledged that at some point in the birthing history, we started intervening in this process and not letting the baby finish. When we, by clamping and cutting the cord early, you don't let the baby finish transitioning to life. And so you've completely interrupted that. And that's on us because we know better now. All of the research that there, I, haven't yet to come across a, pa- a paper that suggests that early clamping is a good idea. So we all know that not clamping immediately uh, is a good idea. But how long is long enough? And this is the question. And, and a lot of hospitals would say, yeah, any more than 60 seconds. Some people say any more than 30 seconds. There's some research that talks about 180 seconds. And for those mathsing that at home... <laughs> That's three minutes. But what I want to say is just like everybody's labor and just like everybody's pregnancy and just like everybody's height and weight, all of this is individual to each individual person. 
So optimal cord clamping, I'm not going to give a number to it because I think it's poor practice to assume that every baby can transition within 60 seconds or 180 seconds or five minutes or 10 minutes. We need to be able to clinically assess each single individual baby to determine if it's fully transitioned yet and no longer using its cord. Only until you can individually assess every baby can you then decide how long is long enough for that baby. So optimal cord clamping means recognizing the signs that the baby has finished using its placenta. And then you can cut it. If if your mind says, well, the research says that after five minutes, the baby's not using it anymore. But you're observing this huge, plump umbilical cord full of blood, a baby that may or may not have fully transitioned properly and functioning quite normally. If, if the cord is still full of blood, the baby's still using its cord. And there's a campaign, there's, you know, the Wait for White campaign. That's one really objective way of working out, has this baby finished using its cord? If the cord is completely white and you can see very little or no uh, blood flow through that cord, you can be pretty certain that that baby has finished using it. We used to say if the cord's no longer pulsating, then you can cut it. But the there is research that suggests, well, actually, no, the cord can pulsate for a lot longer. Um, and so pulsation isn't cessation of pulsation. <laughs> Ooh, that needs to be on a shirt. Cessation of pulsation is not a, really a good clinical indicator of if the baby's finished or not. So, But waiting for white is a good indicator. So that's really easy. You don't even have to touch it. If the cord's white and flaccid, no blood flow through it, it's good It's good to go for cutting and clamping. Some babies transition super quickly and then others, 15 minutes later, you're like, okay, there's still, there's still something going on there, yeah. that baby. And so it is just as every labour and birth is unique. It's incredibly unique to the individual and the situation. Yeah. So I think if the baby's still using its placenta, it's for a reason. It means it hasn't properly transitioned yet. And if you cut and clamp it, then you're interrupting the baby's transition to life. And there's heaps of research. You can look through the papers in the research folder, which tells us what happens if you cut and clamp a cord too early. Uh, I won't go into it completely, but one third of the baby can miss out on one third of its blood volume, which is massive. That's you, a whole blood transfusion. Correct. If you took a third of a, hum, of a mother's blood, she'd be yeah. compromised. Yeah. So they miss out on blood volume. They also miss out on hemoglobin and they can be iron deficient in, in going into life. There is so much more that happens when you leave, leave a cord to pulse, What so much more of what a baby gets. And the reason that we talk about that blood being super important is because iron is necessary for those first six months when a baby's not eating. And it's growing so fast that, that it's iron yeah. and it's making more blood volume. So it's got high iron needs. And so you can leave a baby prone to anemias um, through life by depriving it of its initial blood volume. And it makes sense that it would be giving itself what it needs in order to set itself up for a period where it knows it's not going to get something, for example. Like that's physiology, right? Like that beautiful priming, I'm going to give that to myself and um, through this incredible process. And then we came along and went, ah, 
Plus, Clem and cut the call. I like. Well, I don't know why it was such a, an emergency, and why it came. Like, I think it was actually. I do know active management. It was yeah. It was active management and um, jaundice. Well, yeah. I mean, and we'll talk about the jaundice issue. I just want to pause before we talk about any of the jaundice stuff. Did you, in your research, come across the position that the baby needs to be in for any of this? Like, was that taken in? And I've got a real, there's, there's, there's a bee in my bonnet about this. I have a, I have a real life ex- example or experience to share about this. Um, it's, that is more so about resuscitation. We'll talk about that, but not no this can happen in any position is what I'm trying to say yeah good yeah. I'm glad that because so what happened I need to give the story now but there was a period there in my career not so long ago where I was working in a big tertiary referral hospital and the head obstetrician said um unless we hold the baby underneath the mother's introitus so this only works if the woman's in stirrups or having a cesarean, bring it down. That's the only, because of gravity, that's the only way the baby's going to get the blood. And he was he was teaching a registrar this, right? And so this was, and he was the person in charge of our whole maternity unit yeah. at the time. It was like, it was. Uh, it was the quiet. pump. This is all operating on a pump and the pump is the baby's heart and circulatory system. Like there was this time where people were dropping the babies down. And and this is why I wanted to mention it because this was a massive hospital with lots and lots of births. And I just, if it's happening in your workplace, I mean, Mel would love to know, uh, tell her (laughs) about it. Um, But this is why I I wanted to kind of, just in case it's still happening or it's out there, the belief system was it will only work if you hold the baby lower in order for the blood to run into the baby. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> like, do you understand physiology? At all? I remember I was just in this cesarean because I was like, hang on a second, why are we clamping and cutting the cord? And then there was this whole huge discussion. Yeah, so there you go. And um, look, I don't even have a research paper on that because that is midwifery 101 textbook learning. Well, it's physiology 101. So if this is said to you and and because I'm guarantee, I mean this doctor's still practicing hopefully uh like all of us we're progressing and learning things and perhaps some things we used to do aren't and um, we now know aren't the best way. So perhaps I'm really hoping that that person hasn't if if they haven't moved on from that hopefully they're listening to this but if you are met with that argument it's not an it's not an argument. because oh, it's not true. <laughs> But basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is there's no too long to leave the cord attached, but there is too short. So if in doubt, if you don't know if the baby's effectively transitioned, just leave the cord attached. There's no danger to doing that. And the only thing that they have found is a very slight increased chance of the risk of a baby becoming jaundice if the cord is left to complete, if the baby's left its attached to its cord until it's completely transitioned. But let's talk about jaundice. And there are there is some research that talks about jaundice actually being a protective mechanism. And again, I wasn't planning on going in this specific direction, so, but we will do a whole episode on jaundice. But jaundice can be a protective mechanism. But 
the physiology of it and why babies might be at increased risk of jaundice if they're allowed to have their whole blood volume is that when babies are in utero, their hemoglobin is actually different. The hemoglobin can receive more oxygen than the hemoglobin that we've got on our red blood cells because in utero, it's a lower oxygen environment. So their blood cells need to be way more efficient at capturing and transporting whatever oxygen there is there. When the baby's born, their body very quickly realizes that, that this type of hemoglobin is not necessarily in this atmosphere on earth. And so that hemoglobin breaks down and is replaced by a more appropriate hemoglobin. I'm really, I'm kind of dumbing this down a little bit, but um, essentially that breakdown of red blood cells creates uh, an excess of bilirubin and the liver processes and breaks down bilirubin, shunts it into the baby's digestive system and they poo it out. The problem is, is if the baby's liver can't keep up with the red blood cell breakdown and there's an excess of bilirubin that can't clear properly, it stores it in the skin as a kind of like, well, we'll put that away for a second. We're going to deal with what we're dealing with here and we'll process it later. Uh, and then the baby can go a bit yellow. Now, in a physiological jaundice situation, that happens around day three. It can happen around day three, and it's got varying levels of seriousness, I suppose. Um, most babies that are feeding well uh, and are exposed to natural sunlight will uh, just naturally deal with this jaundice itself. Um, again, this is a whole episode on jaundice management, but in my practice as a home birth midwife, very few babies get jaundice. And that's because they're in their home, they're feeding freely, they have access to lots of natural light. The reason in its skin, actually, bilirubin can be broken down by UV light. So sometimes they'll treat jaundice babies with artificial UV lights, but um, very short periods of full sun exposure can also help with that. But I don't think the the very small risk of increased jaundice is a good enough reason to not be practicing optimal cord clamping, but I guess we should mention it in this episode that that's possible. Yeah, and it's something that is often given as the argument, and it was when this first came out, that was the biggest fear. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. When we really started changing our practice, everyone was scared of increased jaundice and then it got mentioned in the literature and so we have these blanket kind of statements that just get said to everybody um, and will probably be said to you so I think it's yeah I do think we need a whole episode on jaundice and same in cesarean birth and this there's this is a whole lot different we're probably not going to go there today um, but they want to close your body up because it's exposed in a in a sterile environment so with cesarean we do normally see uh, typically what I've seen in the hospital setting is one minute, is respected, um, and then it's kind of like, okay, now we start the process. And, I mean, it, that's cesarean birth and cord clamping is probably a whole, we can probably do a whole Well, episode. we did cover that in the in the positive cesarean section series. We covered optimal cord clamping in cesarean sections. So it could go back to that series as well. Okay, that is the end of this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. This is part one of Optimal Cord Management. Next week, we're going to talk about optimal cord management in special circumstances, such as collecting blood if you've got a negative blood group, for cord gases, during resuscitation, 
how do we manage placental birth with an intact cord and also the issue of stem cell blood banking. So hang out for part two of optimal cord management next week. Thanks for joining us at the Great Birth Rebellion and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right.